Today's episode is sponsored by Firebee Honey. If you are looking for something unique and absolutely delicious, then look no further because I am about to tell you about my latest obsession. Firebee Honey is honey with a kick and the perfect ratio of sweet and heat. This honey is handcrafted in small batches to transform the flavor of raw honey without compromising its amazing health benefits. They use the perfect blend of flavors so even non-spicy lovers can enjoy. We use honey a ton in our house, but wanted to spice things up with a little more flavor. And let me tell you, this stuff is a game changer for sure. My son and I are big chicken nugget people and honey is our go-to dipping sauce. But recently, we switched up our traditional honey for fire bee honey. And let me tell you, I may never go back. And if a kick isn't your thing, Firebee has flavors like cinnamon, vanilla, elderberry, and chocolate that would be perfect for baking. And other items like spicy honey beef jerky and spicy honey barbecue sauce. So if you are ready to spice up your meals and enjoy some flavor while still reaping the benefits of raw honey, then Firebee is the place for you. Get 15% off your purchase when you order two or more bottles by using the link www.firebeehoney.com slash morning cup of murder. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. What happens when a handful of women disappear after coming into contact with one man? You obviously assume the worst. But what if there are never actually any bodies to prove it? On April 12, 1869, a man was born who would leave in his wake a list of missing women. Women who, to this day, no one knows what happened to. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Henri Desiree Landru was born on April 12, 1869 in central Paris to devout working-class Catholics who placed their son in a school to be educated by monks and serve as an altar boy at the nearby church. Henri grew up in the church and even graduated to subdeacon and helped the priest with his vestments, which is where his future wife, Marie Catherine, would first lay eyes on him in 1887. Despite his strict upbringing, Henri and Mary Catherine had their first child out of wedlock in 1891, and shortly after began his three years of mandatory military service where he rose to the position of deputy quartermaster. When he returned home in 1893, he finally married Mary Catherine, who was now pregnant with their second child. The pair would have two more children in 1896 and 1900, while Marie Catherine worked as a laundress and Henri hopped from job to job trying to make ends meet. But while Marie Catherine described him as a model husband and father, he was known to enjoy the company of other women from time to time. Not only was Henri a skirt chaser, but he was obsessed with the idea of becoming a famous inventor, even designing a primitive motorbike he called the Landru that he conned several investors into backing. He pocketed the money and vanished before the bike even began production. He was known to do this a handful of times and, throughout the late 1890s and early 1900s, was on the run from police and barely saw his family. A trip and fall while running away from a bank earned him an arrest in 1904, where he faked a suicide while in prison and was dubbed on the frontiers of madness by psychiatrists. 
After serving his two years in prison, Henri was released, his wife was warned about his mental state, and he spent the next decade in and out of prison while his family rented cheap apartments around Paris. While serving one of these sentences for swindling an affluent widow out of a large sum of money, his father took his own life and Marie Catherine told her husband that it was his fault her father-in-law was dead. That he was in a deep depression because of the shame Henri brought to the family. She would later claim that, shortly after he was released, he stole the 12,000 francs, about 40,000 in today's money, that his father had left for Marie Catherine and the children, leaving them basically penniless once again. Between 1913 and 1914, Henri committed his most lucrative crime when he duped more than a dozen or so men into investing over 35,000 francs into building an automobile factory that he had no intention of actually building. When he secured all the finances, he ran off with it and the money stolen from his wife and kids. He was arrested, convicted in absentia for fraud, and sentenced to four years hard labor, followed by exile for life on the French Pacific Island. Still on the run, Henri began a relationship with a woman named Jean Couchette, a wealthy Parisian seamstress who was recently widowed. She knew her new lover as Raymond Dyard, an industrialist from France who had promised to marry her and care for her 17-year-old son, Andre, if she gave up her lingerie business in Paris. However, in August of 1914, while France declared war on Germany, Raymond failed to meet up with Jean at a planned rendezvous point. So she returned to Paris with Andre and her brother-in-law to try and find Raymond. When she did, the house was empty and she found Henri's identity papers inside of a chest along with several other fake documents. It didn't take long for her to figure out that the man she thought she knew was actually a fugitive on the run, who should have been deported long before. She insisted that their relationship was over, but when Henri appeared in late August of 1914, she resumed their relationship. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, Jean pulled Andre from his job in Paris, and that December, moved with Henri, now posing as Monsieur Couchette, and moved into a small town just north of Paris. That Christmas, Jean wrote a friend explaining that the weather was too poor to visit, and a few weeks later, Andre got a letter, much to his delight, that he would be able to join the army and fight against Germany, and wrote a friend and uncle to deliver the good news. This was the last time anyone heard from Jean or Andre. Now, while Jean and Andre were the first to fall victim to the Bluebeard of Gambe, they certainly weren't the last. From 1915 to 1919, Henri Landru met recorded, engaged, and killed at least eight more women in the village of Gambe. Some were murdered quite soon after meeting Henri, who of course used many aliases. Others were engaged to marry the man for years before they met their fate, all the while courting and killing others during their engagement. After Jean and Andre's murder came the death of Therese Laborde Lynn, a 46-year-old divorcee and widow who met Henri through a Lonely Heart ad in May of 1915. She was killed just a month after meeting her new companion. Next was Marie-Angelique Guyen, a 52-year-old housekeeper who answered his ad and believed he was the consul general to Australia who needed a wife to host diplomatic receptions. She was killed in August of 1915. 55-year-old Bertillon met Henri in the summer of 1915 via a different ad where he posed as a businessman in need for a wife to join him in, in Tunisia and was killed in December of 1915. 
Anna Colomb, 44, was the next to answer his ad, wanting a stepfather for her young, illegitimate daughter, who was in the care of nuns in Italy. The young girl was never located, and Anna disappeared in December of 1916. Andre Bible was just a 19-year-old nanny and part-time sex worker who spent 10 days living with Henri in Paris and about two weeks in Gambe before disappearing in April of 1917. And Celestine Boussan, 47, who had known Henri since May of 1915 and believed she was engaged to him, disappeared just four months later. Now, because he had known Celestine for so long, as he had postponed their wedding for two years due to a lost identity document and business trips, the rest of her family got to know him, including her younger half-sister, Marie Lacoste. Marie did not care for Henri, who was going by Georges Fremiette at this time, and over the two years of the engagement, suspected he was a swindler out to get Celestine's money. A suspicion that was confirmed when Celestine told her that Georges had taken over her investments. Of course, Celestine didn't believe her younger sister and would disappear in September of 1917. Now, Henri started to grow worried that Marie had begun to suspect him of being a bluebeard and tried to send her postcards from Celestine after her disappearance to try and ease her mind. Marie instantly noticed that the signatures were forgeries, but because she simply assumed he was a con man and not a cold-blooded murderer, figured her sister was fine and took no further action. She simply took her sister's silence as embarrassment for falling victim to a swindler. In reality, she was long gone and Henri made several attempts to visit Marie to try and end her life, but failed after Marie continually told him to get lost. She would remain silent about her suspicions until December of 1918. In the meantime, Henri continued his work. Louise Halme, 38 years old, was the next to meet Henri, going by the name of Lucien and posing as a refugee from a German-occupied region. She went missing in November of 1917 after leaving with a one-way ticket to Gambe with her new companion. Anne-Marie Pascal, 27, was looking for a vous monsieur, or sugar daddy, when she met Henri in September of 1916. She was never seen again past April of 1918. The last of all victim to this man was a woman named Marie-Therese Marchadier, a 37-year-old sex worker whom Henri met in October of 1918, though some believe she may have known him much longer. She would go missing in January of 1919. Her body, like every single other victim of Henri Ladru, was never found, which is the main reason he was able to remain undetected for as long as he did, and why his true victim count is impossible to determine. This along with the diminished police force due to the war and Henri's family who lied to police to keep his location a mystery. With his own son acting as a sort of apprentice to his father's criminal lifestyle. Now, just after meeting Marie-Therese in December of 1918, Marie got a letter stating that Celestine's son had been blinded during the war and had tried to contact his mother to borrow money but could not find her. He asked for his aunt's help in getting a hold of his mother, and when Marie visited Celestine's old apartment, the concierge said that she had not been there since the summer of 1917. She knew in that instant that her sister was dead and her fiancé was responsible. So she compiled a dossier of every bit of information she knew and sent it off to the police on January 11, 1919, and sent a letter to the mayor of Gambe about her suspicions. Now, when the mayor got her letter, he claimed he had no idea who Celestine, 
or the man Marie was describing was. In fact, he knew exactly who matched that description, but he knew him as Raoul Dupont. So he put Marie in touch with the younger sister of Henri's sixth victim, Anna Colombe, as she had made an identical report back in 1917. The women filed two missing persons reports and the cases finally made their way up the chain of command and to an inspector, Jules Boleyn, a man who would take all of the women's hard work and use it to arrest Henri Landru, who was by chance seen by a friend of Marie's on April 12th and take full credit for the investigation and arrest. On April 29th, 1919, a few tiny fragments of bone were found in Henri's backyard and the magistrate was confident that this would make for a speedy trial. Unfortunately, like his life on the run, the trial would be anything but simple. While police gathered more than enough information to prove that Henri was a swindler that had come into contact with 283 women over the years, with the exception of the fragments, there was very little proof that the women were killed, despite the fact that 72 of those 283 women were nowhere to be found. Not only that, but his family, who were eventually arrested but released, had worked hard to keep his activities a secret. So it was difficult to find any trail that would lead them to definitive answers. Henri was brought to trial in November of 1921 under the premise that he murdered 10 women and one boy for financial gain. But when the defense argued the facts, they brought forth evidence that some of the women were completely broke. Therefore, killing them for their money seemed like an unlikely motive. His psychiatric evaluations were also contradictory, some saying he was possessed with savage energy and others saying he was entirely normal. During the trial, which was attended by French celebrities and boasted over 500 spectators who crammed themselves inside of the building, Henri refused to stay silent and repeatedly made it clear that he knew exactly where the women were making him seem incredibly guilty. According to his story, he responded to their ads to get their furniture so he could sell it and denied that any of them had been his mistress. And when presented with a notebook of his that contained a long list of names, claimed that they were not victims, but past clients. The defense relied heavily on the lack of evidence of murder and said that the bone shards were planted by an inept police department but had very little in the way of answers as to why the women had not resurfaced after his arrest, claiming he may not have been a murderer, but a pimp who sold the women into white slave trade. After the media circus that was his trial, on November 30th, 1921, Henri Landru was found guilty of all 11 murders after three hours of deliberation. But right after they read the verdict, all 12 jurors were persuaded by the defense to sign a pre-drafted appeal for clemency. This appeal was rejected, and on February 25th, 1922, Henri was placed on the guillotine and executed. Decades after his execution, in 1968, a sketch of an oven that he drew during his trial was produced by the deputy counsel's daughter. Many believe this sketch shows exactly what Henri did to each and every single one of his victims. Next to the drawing, he wrote, One can burn anything one wants in there. And on the back, this demonstrates the stupidity of the witness. Nothing happened in front of the wall, but in the house. To this day, no one really knows what any of it means. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on April 13th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. 
And remember, stay safe. Clarissa frantically called 911 and told the operator that she was 36 weeks pregnant and had just given birth at home, but the baby wasn't breathing and had turned blue. Paramedics quickly arrived and took Clarissa and baby Zander to the hospital, where he was rushed to intensive care. Hospital staff noticed that Clarissa's arms, hands and face were covered in blood, assumedly from the home delivery. But when they managed to check Clarissa over, they made the chilling discovery that she showed no signs at all of having given birth. Red Rum is a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Search Red Rum True Crime wherever you get your podcasts.